Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the the word of the Lord, it remains forever. So brethren, this afternoon my... My intention is to speak to you about the text that is before us here in John chapter 12. It is going to be a little bit different, more of an explanation than application, I would think. But this is the word of the Lord and the Spirit of God is the one who applies his word to the hearts of his people. You may know a little about your heart. I may know a little less, again, with our relationship, but he knows all. He knows what you're going through. He knows everything. He's a God that sees all and knows all. And we trust We trust this afternoon in his hands. Amen. Well, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be, to be glorified. Our Lord is no longer removed from the heat of the, the religious leaders that he departed from so he can get a little bit of reprieve from their, from their hostility. Now the Lord knows that his time has come. He's fixed his gaze upon Jerusalem, knowing full well that it's time for him to be glorified according to the will of the will of the Father. And now he's begun his journey back into Jerusalem, knowing full well when he comes back, the religious leaders in time will grab him. They'll arrest him and they'll mock try him. And then they will, they will kill him. They will crucify him. This is the city, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. And Jesus intends to go back to that city to accomplish the very thing that he has come to the earth in the incarnation to do. To be a sacrifice, a vicarious sacrifice, to lay down his life for his people. In the passage before us, Christ will make his way to Jerusalem, unlike Previous years when he went discreetly in previous feasts, he would go discreetly maybe after the disciples or after the caravan from Galilee and then he'll make an appearance and then he'll sneak away. But that's not going to be the case anymore. This time when he comes down to Jerusalem, he'll come down with a, with a bang. Everyone, everyone will know that he is coming. They'll see him. The young and old will see that Jesus has come. Text before us rightly entitled, The Triumphant Entry. Or otherwise, as you would know it and I, the Palm Sunday. And it's a rich text. It's a text that is filled with Old Testament prophecies foretelling and preparing the people of God for this magnificent day to come. The Messianic King, the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of David, the Shepherd of Israel, will now, before the public eye over the next few days, accomplish all Beloved, all that is required to bring salvation and deliverance to his people. The crowds have caught on 
At first, they're excited, and their excitement has no parallel. You see it. There's joy in the air. There's delight in this passage. We see it. Jubilation fills their hearts and their minds. They perceive that God has provided. God has sent forth His Savior, and with His Savior, salvation will come. Our Messiah has come, is what they're thinking. But will this gleeful emotion that is experienced in our text remain steadfast? When these people, the multitudes, the masses, the swarms, come to realize that the anointed of God, the Messiah of God, is not quite who they thought he would be. He's not quite the Messiah according to their own imaginations. Will they remain steadfast? Will they remain joyful? Because the devastating thing is this, beloved. Believing in a wrong Christ will not save. We have before us a climactic beginning of the last days of our Lord's pre-resurrection ministry. And it's a significant text. It's recorded in all four Gospels. I don't need to explain how much of a blessing it is to have four Gospels in our Bibles. I explained that, I hope, a few weeks ago. But further to that, to have all four Gospels to explain and to to record the same narrative is, is immensely, immensely rich. You see, each gospel writer sees things from a a different perspective. He he might look at different angles to to the other gospel writer. They have different emphases. But you put them on top of one another and there's absolutely no conflict in all of them. Some will include information and some will omit information. But all in all, there is no conflict. And it all depends on the... The author of the gospel who's inspired by God to produce the final result, which is the inherent, infallible word of God. And so when a narrative is recorded in all four gospels, we we are richer for it. Because we are able to put them side by side and then compare the one account with the other. The elements that one author would write and the other doesn't. And, and when we put them on top of each other, as I said, they are perfectly aligned. But then we get an indication of how things work or, or the events that took place when they took place. And we get a bigger picture or a clearer picture, a more colorful picture, a fully all picture. And my intention this afternoon is briefly to do exactly that, to give a summary, including the events that take place in all of the four Gospels that that record this very important text before us. Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19 are the parallels if you're curious. And having them side by side, as I said before, we're able to see the unique aspects of of the Gospel writers as they record this narrative for us. Now, I, 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 I intend to do that very briefly And then I want to concentrate my exposition on what the Apostle John has to say. Because that's what is before us here in John chapter 12. But we won't get through the whole text, I can guarantee you that. But we'll continue the next Lord's Day, Lord willing. Now the text before us and in John, it begins this way. We're told the next day. On its own, we don't have much. But connecting that information with what John has already told us previously in the text, we we get an exact time stamp, an exact reference. The day before is the day that Jesus was invited there in Bethany. He was invited as the guest of honor for a supper or or a dinner. And we were told at the beginning, and that's where Mary anointed Jesus with the very expensive nard. And at the beginning of that text, we're told six days, that's verse one in your text, six days before Passover. So if this is the very next day and the gospel of John is written chronologically, then this is day five, five days before the Passover. So now we have a timestamp. That's important for some detail that is to come. But more so, I want us to see that there's only a handful of days before Jesus, our Lord, is is crucified. The day begins in Bethany, we know that much, and the day ends in Bethany as well. And you'll find in the last week of Jesus' ministry that that is commonplace. Jesus will come from Bethany and he'll remain in in, in Jerusalem and spend some time there in particular in the temple and then he'll withdraw and go back and lodge of an evening in Bethany. 
Now remember that many had already come from Jerusalem. We've seen this in the previous text. Many had already come from Jerusalem to Bethany to see Jesus, or for that matter, to to see Lazarus as well, because they'd heard. They'd heard of this massive miracle that had taken place, Lazarus being dead four days and buried, and now Jesus raising him from the dead. They heard, and now they want to see, and they had already come to, to Bethany to see Jesus. So when Jesus begins his journey to Jerusalem, he's already has amassed for himself a substantial crowd who want to make the trek over the Mount of Olives with him. On the way over, as our Lord approaches Bethpage, now we know Bethany's only a short stroll over to Jerusalem. I've said that on many occasions. There's only the Mount of Olives between Bethany, and Bethany's on the, on the east of Jerusalem, so the trek is going to be a, a westerly trek. They'll go over the Mount of Olives, and then they'll come back down the western side of the Mount of Olives, and before you know, half hour, 40 minutes max, you're there. But as they begin to approach a place called Bethpage, a, a town, on the, on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, Jesus looks over to his disciples and he says to two of them, I want you to go into the village, likely to be Bethpage. And I want you to go in there. And when you do go in there, I, I, I want you, you'll see before you a donkey and, and her colt. And, and I want you to untie the donkey and, and bring the donkey and the colt, in fact, and, and bring them back to me. And if someone says, what are you doing? Why are you untying the cult, then you're to say to them, Jesus, Jesus wants it. And so they, they do. As I said, Bethany is only about a Sabbath day journey, about 900 meters to a kilometer away from Jerusalem. So it's not that far away. And they go in and they obey, they untie, they, and then they're told or they're asked by what seems to be the owners, what are you doing? Why are you untying this donkey and, it's, and the colt? And, and, and the colt, a colt, by the way, is just a, a, a male, young donkey. And Jesus says here that it's one that has not been ridden. And when they're asked, so by seemingly, I would think, the owners, they say what Jesus tells them to say. <laughs> the Lord wants it. And immediately they let him go. interesting choice though because when when jesus comes back the disciples put their their garments they spread their clothing over over both the donkey and the cult i i suppose is to make jesus's ride more comfortable and jesus chooses the cult it's to fulfill scripture and we'll get to that soon because back in zechariah this whole event has been prophesied but it's also interesting that he chooses the the young cult who has not been trained who has not been ridden because if you know anything about these young animals is they don't like to be ridden before they're trained and they'll object to anyone getting onto them they'll normally kick them off but no such thing when the lord of glory sits on an animal that he has created our lord begins to ride the cult with eyes set to jerusalem the crowd follows and at this point people begin to spread their garments on the path, over the path where, where Jesus is sitting and progressing towards Jerusalem, over the Mount of Olives, on this cult, and they're spreading their garments before him. And some others will go and, and go to the nearby trees and find leafy, leafy branches and pull them off the trees and, and place them before the Lord and, and for him to walk over, over this, this carpets, if you, if you will. It must be the equivalent to rolling out red carpet in our day. Because royalty is in their midst. And these people know it. That's what they're thinking. Meanwhile, multitudes from Jerusalem. So these are people who come off from Bethany, going over the Mount of Olives with Jesus, quite a number. And in the meantime, uh, people in Jerusalem, multitudes, we're told, a large crowd, hear that Jesus is coming towards them. And in their excitement, they can't wait. He might be 15 or 20 minutes away, but there's no way they can sit idly knowing that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. So they decide to leave Jerusalem, trek to the east, over the Mount of Olives, to meet up with Jesus and this swarm, this multitude of people. And they decide to meet with him and and come with him and walk back into the city together in this massive caravan filled with celebrations and praises to the Lord and acclamations to Jesus Christ. They come, John tells us, bearing with them palm branches. Branches from a palm tree in their hand. Now, finding those would not have been a problem because Jerusalem's streets was lined with palm trees. In fact, the region in Jerusalem is palm trees, are native to that, 
to that space. But the palm had also become a, a national symbol in the first century of Israel. It was even minted on their coins. So they too, these people, would bring those palm branches that they, that they brought with them from Jerusalem and, and no doubt they would lay them down as the others had laid down their clothing before the Lord for him to walk upon with the colt and others, I, I presume, likely wave the branches in joy. More on that later. There's much joy in the air. There's much jubilation. There's is happiness. There's a buzz taking place here. This is one of the greatest celebrations you'll find in your New Testament Bibles. This is huge. Perhaps not the Pharisees. They weren't too happy. Luke tells us they were, were in the group as well. They'd come along for the ride. Maybe they were curious to see what's going on. As the multitudes began, though, to descend on the western side of the Mount of Olives because they've gone up the eastern side and now they're coming towards the western side, towards, towards Jerusalem. On their approach to Jerusalem, the crowd becomes vocal. Really, really vocal. They raise their voices. They cry out and they shout out in acclamation with roaring voices. They chant, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Even the king of Israel. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Taking from all four gospels, of course. What a scene. It's likely that those in Jerusalem, who remained in Jerusalem, it's likely they could hear the thundering voices walking down the eastern, western side of the Mount of Olives. It's likely they could hear the chanting, the rumblings, as they praised God, as they exalted this Jesus, as they declared him to be their king. And those in the crowd who had witnessed Lazarus, him being raised from the dead, <laughs> Now with the others who are just coming up from Jerusalem to, to join with them and to progress back down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, they began to bear witness about what they had seen and heard. Have you heard about Lazarus? Have you heard about what Jesus has done with the man who was previously dead and buried for four days? Yes, we heard. That's why, that's why we've come. That's exactly. Yeah, but, but do you know the details? I was there. Let me tell you what happened. I saw this man. He was sick. He was pale. I've seen him progress and I saw him die. I saw him being buried. And then four days later, Jesus turns up and with a loud voice, he says, Lazarus, come forth. And before you know it, Lazarus comes out of the tomb all wrapped in cloth still. Do you, do you believe it? How amazing is this? And as they speaking and bearing witness one with the other, no doubt, no doubt, they, they become, their excitement is stronger and stronger and, and no doubt their voices become louder and louder. And at this point, it's this point that the curious Pharisees who come along for the ride can take it no longer. Hearing the chant, in essence, the chant that says, Long live our King. They demand of Christ to rebuke them. This in their eyes is blasphemous. How dare you, Jesus, allow these people say these things about you and you remain quiet. It's like when, when some have come before you and fall prostrate on their face and worship you. And you don't say, get up, don't worship me. But you receive it. And the reply of our Lord, hear this. I tell you, he says, if these were silent, these people, the multitudes, the very stones would cry out. This is Jesus the one who is truth speaking. This is not hyperbole. Think for a moment about these words. Absolute majesty. And now, as Jerusalem was in full view, and they're closer and closer, the crowd remains joyful and loud, they're shouting with exclamation. 
they're jumping, they're, they're, they're rejoicing, the celebration is at absolute fever pitch. But all of a sudden, our Lord's countenance changes completely. Because as he hears this, this shout and the roar and the chant of the massive crowd that is before him and, and after him, as he listens with his ears and sees the emotion, he's not caught up with the emotion. He's a God that not only sees with his eyes, but he knows what is in the heart. And he knows that it is in just a matter of days that this excitement will completely wear out. It's only a matter of days that the cry of the mouths of these people, these multitudes, that the utterance of, the, of their mouths will change, the tune will change. No longer, no longer will they declare and chant, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. No longer will they proclaim that. The once people who joyfully were heralding Jesus as King in only a few days will declare away with this man. We will not have him rule over us. And our Lord's eyes beheld Jerusalem that is just before him as he sits on this colt. And with the deafening shouts all around him, Luke tells us he begins to weep. Because in a few days' time, this nation will reject him as king. And therefore reject his salvation. He arrives to Jerusalem. He enters into the east gate. And upon entering into the city with this crowd who are still chanting and raising their voice and rejoicing, the excitement stirred up the whole city of Jerusalem. And they stand back and they, they ask the question, Who is this man? And the answer from the crowd this is the prophet Jesus the Nazar- from Nazareth of Galilee. Nothing wrong with that answer. It's truthful. Nothing wrong with what the people had been shouting thus far. It's completely truthful. In fact, the words are true. But are they rooted in their hearts, beloved? Were these words that came out of the mouths of these multitudes in agreement with what is in their hearts? That's the question that needs to be asked. Our Lord arrives to the temple and it's a bit late, but we're told that He begins to heal some sick, mainly He heals the lame and, and the blind. And then the massive crowd continues to raise their voices and and chant, Hosanna, son of David. Hosanna, son of David. And now it's not the Pharisees, but those who reside in the temple who are the chief priests and the scribes who who at this time are furious, indignant, we're told, in Matthew. And they come to Jesus and they say, Do you hear what these people are saying? Like you claim to be a man of God. You claim to be a rabbi, a religious person. How can you allow them to blaspheme in this way is what they're thinking. Do you hear what they're saying? And then Jesus says to them, yes, I do. Have you never read? Do you love the way our Lord always appeals to Scripture? I love that. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, we're told, He went out of the city to Bethany and then he lodged there. That's a 30,000 foot high view of the amalgamated account of the four accounts. I hope I put them all in order for you because I know sometimes when we read the accounts one by one, it can get a little confusing as to when things take place and the timing and the dates and those sort of things. But I felt it would be fruitful that you hear it in that order, in chronological order, as it took place on this day. The only question is, some may think that the cleansing of the temple took place on the same day. It's listed that way in Matthew, but Matthew is more structured thematically. In fact, Jesus cleanses the temple on the next day. 
So now I intend to, having done that, and have that in your mind, I intend to spend time together, whatever time we have left, in the Gospel according to John, to examine some of the details the Apostle under inspiration has recorded for us of this event. From verse 1. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. John admits, if you realize, the beginning of the journey. Because the journey, as I said earlier, starts in Bethany. But the record he has for us begins at the point where the multitudes come out of Jerusalem because they'd heard that Jesus is coming and they come to meet with Jesus who is already coming from Bethany, probably around about halfway there with all those, the crowd that were with him in Bethany. We're told a large crowd come out. Now, when we read that in the text, it's hard to know exactly whether this is 50,000 or it's 200, right? But this crowd, although we don't know exactly how many, because the Bible doesn't tell us, it was very likely to be thousands, not, not hundreds. Why? Because as I said earlier, Matthew, Matthew labors in the gospel that bears his name to make sure the reader understands that when, when this crowd came back into Jerusalem, it wasn't part of the city, but the whole city that was stirred up, or otherwise you can say it was shaken up. Agitated is another way to say it, upon this crowd coming, because this was a big deal, right? You had thousands of people coming, chanting at the top of their voices, coming towards you, down the Mount of Olives. You hear the rumblings from a distance. What's going on? Is this a war? Is this a king coming with his warriors to declare war on us? Maybe that's what they were thinking. I'm not sure. But there were lots, thousands with Christ. In fact, conservative estimate, I think, would be perhaps there would have been at least at least 200,000 maybe in Jerusalem at this point in time. According to Josephus, the historian, a census was done of one of the Passovers to see how many participants were there. This was before the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. And he, according to what he's written, and he, he said that it's 2.7 million were counted in partaking one year in the Passover. Now I know that it's still five days out from the Passover. So people are still trickling into the city. It's not quite bursting at the seams. But let's give it 10%. There's over 200,000 people and that's quite conservative. Beloved, that's a third of the population almost of the Gulf Coast. And they come in and it stirs up the whole city. There's no one in that city who's not stirred up by what has just taken place. Anyway, the residents and the pilgrims in Jerusalem had heard that Jesus is coming. And so they went out to the east to join him and to return, to return with him. Beloved, this is a, this is a token of honor. This might be unusual for you and I. You're thinking he's only 15 odd or 20 minutes away. Why not wait for Christ to come back? But this was quite commonplace, foreign to our ears, but commonplace to the first, the ancient first century, especially when royalty was to visit a town. If a prince or a king was to come, normally they, they, would, they would come, especially if they'd been out in battle and they're coming back victorious. When the people of the town hear that their king, their prince has come, they're not staying back or sitting on their hands idly. They're going to go out in honoring of the king and they're going to come to the king and together they come together into the city chanting and rejoicing and singing praises. This is what, this is what they did in ancient times. And it's without doubt that these people have recognized that Jesus is that king. That there's never been a time where the Messianic king was so anticipated as in the first century. People were waiting, they were anticipating, they were praying to Yahweh. Bring the king, bring the anointed one of God, the son of David. Bring him to us, rescue us, bring salvation, O oh God. This was, this was their prayer. Waiting for the Messianic king. And they declared this Jesus as king. They considered him as king. Everything that I explained in the narrative thus, thus far would show and, and evidence that, that the people, the multitudes, that's their disposition towards Christ. That he's royalty, that he's that king. In fact, they say as much in verse 13. 
So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, we're told, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hear this, even the king of Israel. Hosanna, they cry out. I've mentioned that word on multiple occasions this afternoon, but I haven't explained what it means. Hosanna. Hosanna, Hosanna in other records. It's a Greek word, Hosanna, but it's transliterated from the Hebrew word. In other words, the way the Hebrew word sounds, the Greek word has, has, has transliterated that word and, and has made a word so you can point back to the original Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word is found in Scripture. See, these people are not proclaiming. They're not declaring words from their own mind. They are rooting what they say in Scripture. These people, these multitudes are well versed in the Word of God. They've, they've, they've explained the Word of God in their mind, but was it a right explanation? They recognize, they recognize that this is the Word of God, and they look to the Scriptures to see if they can interpret the times. So they look back to a Messianic psalm that would be fulfilled in the Messianic King to come, the Anointed of God, and they found themselves in Psalm chapter 118, verse 25, and it reads this way, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success or prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Where's Hosanna? Well, save us is Hosanna. It's been translated that way. The word for save us is actually the word, or the root word for Hosanna. It means save us now or deliver us now. That's what Hosanna means. Or you can interpret it, salvation is ours. The one who comes in the name of the Lord. The one that the Psalm 118 speaks to. The anointed of God, the Messianic King. They're saying, is this Jesus who is before us? The Jews are recognizing this Jesus as that Messianic King. And that's why they chant Salvation, blessing, prosperity, victory is ours through this King, Jesus. Things are going to change, is what they're thinking. Because now the King has come. The anointed of God has proven, has proven to have power to raise the dead. The testimony is everywhere. All in the multitude have heard the story now. In fact, John tells us a little later, I think it's verse 16 to 70, that the reason they came was because they'd heard about what had taken place with Lazarus being raised from the dead. If Jesus has power to raise a dead man who had been dead and buried for four days and raise him from the dead, then what enemy can stand before this king? They cried out for a deliverer. They were praying for a saviour. They were praying for a rescuer for centuries, the long-awaiting king to come. And Yahweh has sent his deliverer. He, he's a warrior king. He's our salvation, they're thinking. He will be victorious to save us from all our enemies. Hosanna in the highest. Now you'd expect a moment like this, so grand, so majestic, to be prophesied in old, right? Of course it is. Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, some 500, over 500 years earlier. Zechariah is a, is a minor prophet. So you have the, the end of the Old Testament. It's two backwards. You have Malachi and work back one more and you find Zechariah. And the quotation is for us because the Apostle John has given us in verse 15 of our passage where we read, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey, on a donkey's colt. It's interesting though. Under inspiration of the Spirit of God, the Apostle John does slightly change the wording. In Zechariah, literally, it reads, Greatly rejoice, daughter of Zion. Uh, Zion. But the Apostle John instead writes, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Essentially, the message is both. Your king is coming. <laughs> Your deliverer is coming. Your salvation is coming through this king. The conquering king sent by Yahweh that you've been anticipating for so long. The time for fear is over. If Yahweh is sent through his king, then what are you to fear? He is a conquering king. Who can stay his hand? Time for fear is over. Now rejoice. Exult in this king. Exult in this rescuer. He's the triumphant. He will be triumphant over all the enemies the victory is his and his people will not be destroyed. Fear not. Rejoice in this king. Realize though, 
that John tells us that when these people came from Jerusalem to join with the, with the crowd that had already set from Bethany, that they bring something with them. They bring palm branches with them. The Apostle John makes sure he mentions that, and I think it's important. Palm branches will solidify that exact point. They speak to victory. A victory that will come through this king. Now I said earlier, palm tree has, up until this point, uh, become like the emblem or the, or the symbol of, of the people of Israel, the nation at least. Now that's true, and palm trees are native, they grow everywhere throughout the land. But, but the palm tree or the palm branch has also a significance, biblically speaking. Palm branches are themselves a symbol of victory, a symbol of strength. You have to know that there's a reason why Yahweh, through Moses, commands the people of Israel when they come to celebrate the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, when they are to celebrate that feast, that they are to wave palm branches with them, recorded for us in Leviticus chapter 24. It's because these palms portray a particular message. Think with me for a moment. I don't know how well you can imagine things. I'm very bad at it, so it's a risk. Think of a desert. Have you been to a desert or have you flown over a desert? But a very barren wasteland. Where as far as you can see, there's nothing but brown. Nothing but, but sand. Death everywhere. You might see some bones here and there, but as far as you can see in the horizon, you can see absolutely nothing. It's lifeless. It's brown. Nothing is growing in this place. And you're right there, smack bang, in the middle. And now I want you to think of this. But then you look further into the horizon, and now towering above the horizon is one single tree. What tree is it? It's a palm. It's a palm tree. The palm tree that, that grows in the, in the wilderness, is, there's, life, there's life nowhere else. It's, it's a lifeless place. And yet the palm tree somehow is able to flourish in this desert. The desert practically claims the life of everything. All life, human life, or animal life, tree, tree well, you name it. The, the desert practically claims it. But here you have this palm tree, which is so common, just standing there, majestically, in the middle of that desert, flowing its branches like this and saying, all that you throw at me, and I remain here, undestroyed, triumphant, victorious. You know, we're told... In the book of Psalms, Psalm 92, in fact, because of the blessing of the Lord, the righteous, that is, those who are in the Lord, in Christ, the people of God, the righteous, they flourish like a palm tree. Because they're rooted in Yahweh. They're found in God, in the court of God. He is their nutrients. He is their strength. There's no streams of water. There's no rivers anywhere. There's nothing that they can feed from. God is the one who feeds them, even though it's barren everywhere and it's lifeless everywhere. Yahweh is the one who feeds His people. And if they're rooted and grounded in Him, the world can throw whatever they want at Him. You stay victorious because He is triumphant. He is victorious. And no one can stay His hand. No matter how strong the opposition, God is stronger. And the righteous will not be destroyed. The palm is a symbol of undefeated victory. The Feast of Booths was a celebration where Yahweh had commanded the people in Leviticus chapter 23 to wave the palm in celebration and in joyful worship to the Lord. You remember the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. I know it's been a while, maybe a year, since we last addressed what that feast portrays or what it signifies. But, but it commemorates. The people of Israel were meant to look back and commemorate 1,500 years ago when the Lord, Yahweh, had rescued the people of Israel because of the promise He made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and brought them out of the land of Egypt and promised that He'll make them a, a people, a nation with a land. And they wandered in the wilderness for how long? 40 years. Often, quite often, they were in barren wastelands, in deserts, 
unforgiving wilderness. Enemies on all sides. You know that. We read the text. We've gone through the first five books of Moses. Harsh desert conditions. Deadly animals. Pests and diseases. Living essentially like nomads. And yet against all odds. Against all odds. Just like the palm that were preserved by Yahweh. How is that? Where do you find food in a desert? It doesn't matter. Manna from heaven. Quail from heaven. Where do you find water when there is no water? It doesn't matter. Water from the rock. That is Christ. What about clothing? There's no factories in the desert wasteland, is there? It's okay. Because everything they wore and the shoes and the clothing did not wear out as long as God was with them. Waving the palm, I believe, was a representation of this. Victory in God and in God alone through Christ Jesus, his King. So now this multitude spreading palms across the path and and some very likely are waving the palms as they would in the Feast of Tabernacles. And they're chanting at the top of their voices, Hosanna, Hosanna. Declaring that through this Jesus, this King of Israel who comes in the name of the Lord, deliverance will come. Victory. Victory will be ours. No matter the odds, As a palm stands, so too triumphant we stand with Jesus, our King, who is victorious over all the enemies of God and His people. Beloved, listen to me very carefully. There's actually faith being displayed right here, right now. And it's a very strong faith. Whatever these people had in their mind and envisaged Jesus, this messianic king would do, they had the full and utter confidence and faith that he will do it. Now, whether they envisaged the right work that he will accomplish or the wrong work he will accomplish, we'll get to that. But they had a particular type of faith. Remember, Faith is meaningless apart from the object of your faith. And as I said and began the sermon, if you have faith in the wrong Christ, you have nothing because the wrong Christ cannot save. I'll move on, but before I do, the only other place in the New Testament that I found that the palm is mentioned is a glorious passage in Revelation chapter 7. I wanted to take you there, but I'm not for the sake of time because I am running out quickly. But it speaks to the final victory. A great multitude in the text. Just like a great multitude here. But a multitude that cannot be counted. And they all stand before the throne of God and before the Lamb. From every tribe and nation and tongue and people. Dressed in white robes. With palm branches in hand. Declaring the glory and the triumph and the victory of our Savior. Our King. Jesus Christ. This is beautiful imagery. The mouths of these people here in John chapter 12, the multitudes that probably cannot be counted. It's just beautiful biblical truth. They quote scripture, beloved. But do their mouths find agreement with their hearts? Or do they utter words in mere emotion that are beyond what they could ever understand? They confess with the mouth, and that's a good thing. But do they also believe truth of that confession in their hearts? Not according to their own uh, imaginations, but according to truth, according to God's word. It is the right Christ. Is it the right Christ they believe in? Or as I said earlier, is it the wrong Christ who will not save? Multitudes declare him as king. They bear with one another that he is the prophet sent by God. And that's a good thing. But do they remember the instruction that were given when God said to his people through Moses that the prophet, the prophet, definite article, the prophet will come. And these people knew, and I'll prove this in a few weeks, that the prophet to come was also the messianic king. He was one and the same. They had understanding of that. So when God declared to the people of Israel that you are to wait for among your brothers will come the prophet like Moses. But in a sense, they knew he was a greater prophet than Moses. 
And when God declared to them that, that when He comes, I'm going to give you a command. I'm going to give you instruction to obey. Have these people obeyed that instruction? It is a simple instruction, in fact. In fact, it is only one thing they needed to do. And that is, when He comes, Yahweh says, listen to Him. Listen to Him. The miracle that you heard about with, with Lazarus and the raising from the dead, that, that sparked the attention, that's good, but now are you listening to the Messiah? Or are you there just for the show? Have these people listened to Christ who has the words of eternal life? Or are they merely captivated by what they, He has done, raising Lazarus from the dead? Have they come to understand what the Scripture speaks to? in the spirit of the Scripture, about the Messiah who is to come? Have they come to understand what the words of Jesus, the claims of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, where He's three years plus into His teaching, and He's explained so many things over and again. Have they given ear to this Messianic King, to this prophet, as God has said? Have they listened to what He had to say? Listen also means to obey. They cry, Hosanna, save us, deliver us. That's what comes out of their mouth. Have they come to know how this one who comes in the name of the Lord will save them? How he'll deliver his people? Why have they concocted a Messiah in their own understanding of their own choosing, created a savior that meets their own purposes? A savior that is according to the machinations of their own hearts. A a king according to their own minds. Is this joy and jubilation and ecstasy that we see all the way from Bethany, all the way into Jerusalem? Is this, is this day rooted in saving truth or in damnable fantasy? My beloved, these words are so relevant to us today as they are to these folk back then. Your imagination and mine won't save us. Salvation is of of the Lord. The Messiah that we have, the Savior that we have, the Jesus that we have must, must, must be consistent with the Word of God because it is the truth that sets you free. And if it's a Messiah that is not rooted in the truth of the Scripture, let me tell you this much, there is no salvation in a Messiah like that. They had some facts right. In fact, they uttered many facts that were right. Yes, he will be a victorious king, they said as much. Yes, he will be one who conquers the enemy, that's true. Yes, he will bring peace, praise be to his name. And yes, he will save his people. But is his salvation what you expect? Is the peace that he brings the peace that you desire? Is the enemy that he'll defeat the enemy that you so desperately need to be saved from? What salvation do you think he brings? What do you think Jesus has come to accomplish? The scripture gives answers. The Lord himself from his own mouth has given answers. The question is, is this ecstasy, for the most part, from the people who are now around our Lord, declaring and chanting these glorious truths, is it rooted in the right stuff? We know the rest of Scripture. Unfortunately, it's not as it seems. Because God is more concerned with what is in the heart, beloved, than what comes out of the mouth. This week, some brothers from this fellowship were discussing a passage in the gospel according to John. And without going into any detail, I can tell you that it reminded me once again of the importance of when we are readers of Scripture, that we are thorough readers of Scripture, and that we, and that we always, always reserve judgment until we have the whole story. And that's especially important in the gospel according to John because if you come to realize, and I hope, I hope I've made it clear over the last several years that we've been in John, but you'll come to realize that when the apostle John uses terms like believe or disciples 
he uses the same term for both the counterfeit and the genuine. And so it makes it quite difficult if you're only looking at word search to see who are true, genuine believers and who are not. The context is very important. But beyond that, the context, and also you need to follow sometimes with the Apostle John, follow the narrative through to the end in order to get a proper, thorough understanding. You want to discern what the Apostle is saying. You need to follow the narrative. You need to continue to the end. Because there are many that he says believed in Christ or believed in his name. Examples, two examples is, is John chapter 2 and John chapter 8. You'll find examples like that and you're thinking, praise God and we're quick to celebrate, praise God. These are true believers, but before you know it, on one occasion Jesus says, but he did not believe in them. In other words, he did not entrust himself to them. And in the end, the ones who supposedly believed in him pick up stones and try to stone him. On other occasions when he says disciples, that is followers of Christ, when he says disciples, on, on occasion, these are disciples who are followers of Christ, who are, who are with him more than just one day. It's not like a day thing. These guys are following after Christ. And in John chapter 6, we're told that his, these so-called disciples turned their back on Christ. And they, and they walk away. In fact, they walk away after only 24 hours. Why? Because the words of Christ. The words of Christ. Remember, the instruction is when he comes, listen to him. In other words, listen and obey. The words of Christ were too hard for them to hear. The truth was offensive to these people and they could not handle the truth. They had no love for the Savior and therefore they had no love for the one who is truth, who is Christ. In the end, they abandoned the Lord. A true disciple will always, he will be kept until the end. A true disciple has had a heart changed. A true disciple has had the finger of God upon his heart. That he has an encounter with the living God by his grace and through faith he's come to see his wretchedness and his brokenness and his absolute desperate need for a saviour. And then the Lord is the one who now puts his, his, his hand under, under this, this once sinner who's now saved by the grace of God. And he makes sure that this, the, the triune effort makes sure that, that this sinner will make it home, will be preserved until the very, very, very end. By definition, a disciple is a learner. That's what the Greek word means, to be a learner. And if you are no longer a learner of Christ, then you are no longer a disciple of Christ as well. The Lord himself said in John chapter 8, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know truth, and the truth will set you free. He has the words of eternal life. He has the words of eternal life. So one can say all the right things and speak all the right words. One can follow after Christ for a period. The true test is time. As Jesus says, he who stands firm until will be saved. Right now. Right now, this multitude on the surface that are following after Christ, for the most part, they look like true followers. Joy. Proclamations of truth. They seem to be following after him. They don't care about the consequences. When they're coming down into Jerusalem, roaring and chanting these declarations, they have no fear of not only who are in Jerusalem, the religious leaders who are going to be quite indignant, but just down the road you have the, you have the, um, the, the, the guard of Antonia. It's not the guard, it's the fortress. The fortress of Antonia. And who is in that fortress? Roman soldiers. They don't like uproars. If they come, it's not like they don't understand. They, they, they understand. They were speaking Greek. That was the common language. Some, some in Aramaic, but, but many of them were speaking Greek. That was the common language. These soldiers could communicate with the people. King? So there's a king who, this Jesus is the king, and he's, and he's amassing a crowd after him. Could this king threaten our king, Caesar? They didn't care. They didn't care. They don't care about the consequences. This sounds to me, uh, at least at a superficial level, like they're true followers of Christ, abandoning self, carrying their cross and following after him. But just because they said all the right things and seemingly are doing all the right things, it doesn't mean salvation has come to their soul. Because they fixed their faith upon something other than truth. 
They may be chanting truth with their mouths. But you remember what our Lord said, and I referred to it earlier, when he went to Jerusalem into the temple and the people were chanting truth again and the chief priests and the scribes were indignant and they said, you hear what these people are saying? You remember, I tell you if these, these were silent. I'm sorry, my apologies to the Pharisees, he says. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The sounds of the mouth, they, they matter but only if they're rooted with agreement with the heart. So you see, we know the rest of the story and we know that this is not the Messiah these people are waiting for. It's no surprise to our Lord. I referred or alluded to that fact when I was going through the fly-through, if you remember. Because when when our Lord saw or came down in a, a, a um, beheld, beheld Jerusalem and the roar is continuing, the proclamations, the, the joy and the chanting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, Hosanna, all that is taking place. Our Lord weeps. And then he opens his mouth and says these words, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Think about those words in this context. This is not a day or two or three or five days later. This is Jesus actually in the act of sitting on the colt, coming down towards Jerusalem. And the people are proclaiming, this is our king. Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the king of Israel, the son of David. The one who comes and brings victory with us. The one who will finally bring peace to us. And Jesus says, in the midst of that, in the midst of that, Jesus says with his own mouth, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Yes. Yes, he's meaning that for the religious leaders, but by implication to all those who have rejected him, which are the majority of the people who are around him even now. But they are hidden from your eyes, he goes on to say, and then he'll conclude, because you did not know the time of your visitation. What do you mean? He's right here. They're declaring you as king. How can you say they did not know the time of of your visitation? Yes. Because the Messiah and the king that now they are glorifying is not the true Christ. It's one they've fabricated in their mind. Just because they call him Jesus, just because they acknowledge this is the Jesus who walks before them, if they fabricated in their mind a Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Bible, then they're lost. There's no substance in the heart. And that's a terror, terrifying Reminder to all of us to, to continue to observe the words of the Apostle Paul to the church of Corinth. Do not go beyond what is written. This is truth. This is truth. And, and you can proclaim this truth. But apart from the spirit of truth, that truth will not find residence in your heart or mind. That's a scary thought. Because they were proclaiming the same truth I'm proclaiming to you from this pulpit. They were referencing the same inerrant scripture that I'm referencing from this pulpit. How dependent are we upon grace? How dependent are we upon the mercy of God through Jesus Christ? Beloved, these people had upheld Christ and lifted him up and, and are proclaiming his praises. But it's a different Messiah that they're, that they're looking to. The enemy that they wanted to be saved from is Rome. And the minions of Rome, Herod being one, they're seeking a political king, a warrior king who will take arms and destroy the oppressive ruling power of the day they had their eyes upon king david they're proclaiming jesus as the son of david which he is 
you're thinking about David, the man who shed much blood, ten thousands. The warrior, the one who takes on the enemy without fear in his heart. They're wanting the golden age to come back. You know, the 40 years or at least 33 of David. He's 40 years in total, but 33 are with golden years of, of David when, when, when the enemies were subdued and for the most part. And there was peace in the land. They want the restored autonomy over, over the land of Israel, over, over the temple. They, they want rest from their enemies, the nations. They want the nations to tremble at the sight of Israel as they were trembling at the sight of David when David was king. It's passages like First Chronicles, First Chronicles. Uh, chapter 14, 17 might be on their mind where, where we read, And the fame of David went out into all lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him upon all the nations. They want a messianic king like that. Jesus, son of David, we want you to be a king like that. This momentous day was prophesied of old. God is making a massive statement to render all without excuse. Because this is the Messiah of God. This is the anointed of God. Jesus is the messianic king who has come to save his people from their greatest enemy. And he'll bring salvation. But not according to man's understanding not according to their understanding. He won't be the Messiah that you want, but He's the Messiah that you need. God's anointed will save His people from their sins. It's not the fury of Rome that ought to be a concern. An empire, no matter how strong, that is here today and gone tomorrow. But the eternal wrath of an eternal God who cannot look upon sin and must recompense sin. And this is the scary, terrifying thing that every man, woman and child has been tainted and corrupted by this sin. The psalm that was read this morning... Where God says that he will not look upon the unrighteous. When he looks upon the unrighteous, he will wet his sword. He's not talking about water. And it's a scary image when we think about it. He's talking about withdrawing the sword and now it's wet. And they declared, save us, save us. Amen. But not from Rome. But from the wrath to come. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is that king. You may not want this king, but you, you desperately need this king. You desperately need his salvation. You desperately need his victory. You desperately need his intercession. God has provided. He promised he will. And he's provided through Jesus Christ. But in a few, mere few days, sadly for the most part, that are before the Lord, they'll reject this king. And in turn, they will reject his salvation. They cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. Quoting verse 25 of Psalm 118. And yet they don't realize that they are implicit in the indictment of what takes place, or the words of that exact same psalm, but only three verses earlier. Because verse 25 says, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he, comes in the name of the Lord. And verse 22 reads, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In a few days' time, they will see the stone that God has provided to build his kingdom, that cornerstone that is Christ. The kingdom of God is built upon this cornerstone. And they'll look upon it and they'll look at what they are building and they'll see that this stone is incompatible with the building they're building with. And so they'll say, nope. We refuse and reject that stone it doesn't fit in with what we are building. 
The Messiah we want is not a Messiah who will save us through his death. The Messiah we want is a Messiah who right now will assume David's throne. Not understanding if right now he assumes David's throne physically there in the kingdom or in the, in the, in the temple, that every one of them will perish in their sins. What they require is a Messiah who in his love and in his mercy will lay down his life and shed his blood as a propitiation on behalf, on behalf of sinners like us. What they need is a sacrificial lamb. What they need and desperately need is a vicarious sacrifice to lay down his life on behalf of sinners to rescue us from our sin. Why? It's in his name. You shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Have you enthroned this Jesus in the heart of your life? Is this Jesus king of your life? Because we proclaim that Jesus is indeed enthroned in our lives. But is it the Jesus of the Bible? Is it this Messiah who now sits at the right hand of the Father? He is on the throne. He is on the throne and he rules and he reigns in righteousness. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I pray, I pray for all of us that that takes place on this side of eternity on not the next. Because there is salvation in no one else. Let's pray.